Welcome to GLF Live, a podcast from the Global Landscapes Forum. It's been over a year since Russia started a full-scale war in Ukraine that has displaced millions of people and caused global food and energy prices to spiral out of control. Meanwhile, other armed conflicts continue to rage in Yemen, Syria, Ethiopia, Myanmar, and elsewhere. In today's episode, we're counting the environmental cost of all of these wars. Whether it's through destroying natural landscapes, or wiping out human livelihoods, or taking resources away from conservation, war and conflict take a heavy toll on both people and the planet alike. Joining us now to assess the damage are two very special guests, a leading conflict and peacebuilding expert, and Ukraine's Deputy Minister of Environmental Protection and Natural Resources. We hope you enjoy this rather sobering but eye-opening conversation. Hi everyone, and welcome to GLF Live. My name is Gabrielle Lipton. I'm the editor of Landscape News for the Global Landscapes Forum. And today we're here to have a very important conversation, a difficult one and a tragic one, but one that demands more attention in today's context. And that is how human warfare and conflict fuels our collective war on the climate, the environment, and nature. And if and how these two things can be decoupled. The environmental impacts of war are massive beyond the obvious destruction of landscapes from bombings and military combat. There's also the pollution emitted by militaries, mass migrations of people, spending and the diversion of funds, and a multitude of other short and long-term repercussions that don't always meet the eye. So to unpack this critical topic, we are extremely fortunate to have here with us today, Ukraine's Deputy Minister of Environmental Protection and Natural Resources, Irina Stavchuk, who is joining us from Kiev and comes from a long career leading environmental organizations, including at the World Bank and the Climate Action Network. And joining her is Dr. Musa Alaya, who teaches and researches on international development, peacebuilding, and conflict studies at the Doha Institute for Graduate Studies, and specializes on the Arabian Peninsula and the Middle East. So we have some incredible experts with us, um, and we are going to uh, just dive right into this conversation. Thank you so much for joining us from across the world. And um, yeah, let's get started. Uh, so Deputy Minister, when the Russian invasion of your country began, what were your immediate fears and expectations that it would have on the environment and the climate? And how have these fears and expectations uh, materialized in reality? The Russian invasion was generally extremely unexpected. So most of us woke up in the morning just to understand that in many cities of the country there were bombings. And actually, already in several hours, we learned that they already got onto Chernobyl exclusion zone and that they captured the stuff there. And Chernobyl exclusion zone is a very special place. It's a place where Chernobyl nuclear reactor blown up in 1986. And it's still a place which has a lot of radioactive materials kept there. There is itself the confinement of the nuclear power plant which blown up and there are a lot of different facilities on this place as well and also the areas around it is contaminated with radioactive pollution so the first immediate fear was that you know whatever um, mistake or whatever uh, uncoordinated action that Russian army can do can bring a lot of radioactive pollution to the region, not only to Ukraine. And then a few days later, they also captured uh, the actual acting uh, nuclear power plant in Zaporizhia, that's the biggest in Europe. And what was happening, they were shooting at this plant, the administrative buildings got on fire and they were killing and shooting the firemen who was trying to stop the fire. So they were doing like such extreme activities that nobody could believe the country which also has nuclear power can do because these are the threats which go far beyond Ukrainian borders and would have enormous environmental impacts. Of course, we are also an industrialized country, so we have a lot of big industrial facilities with uh, quite hazardous materials. And what has been happening over this period, there were attacks on specific companies and uh, um, different environmental catastrophes, local ones were happening. So they were shooting at an ammonia plant. There were cases of shootings of um, 
yeah, other industrial companies and also a lot of oil depots. That's also one of the kind of, uh, there were a lot of oil tanks and oil um, uh, kind of uh, factories which were uh, which were keeping oil and oil products and oil itself and they were blown up with huge air pollution with leaks into the land and with uh, enormous local impacts on the environment. Uh, we also observe, and uh, that's something to be assessed on the later stages, the direct impact on nature, because these military activities, they have very di direct impacts. And uh, now even at the territories where they left, there are a lot of mines left, which is dangerous for local staff working in the nature protected areas, in the forestry enterprises, but also of course for the animals and uh, yeah, all the biodiversity. So most of the impacts are still to be assessed, but um, yeah, in general, it brings quite enormous negative environmental impacts, which we would have to overcome for many years after this conflict. Mm -hmm. And it's such a wide reaching range of environmental impacts. And, and among the ones you named are oil, chemicals, biodiversity, um, species loss, in addition to just the destruction of the landscape and the, the rubble. Um, it's quite unfathomable. Dr. Alaya, um, switching to you for a moment, you've specialized your research um, in conflict in Syria and Yemen. What were some of the most environmentally taxing parts of those conflicts? Um, thank you so much, Gabriela, for your for this interview, and I'm I'm really uh, uh, glad to be with also the deputy minister of environment in Ukraine. Um, actually, this is really um, a problem that has been received uh, increasing assistance and uh, attention in the recent years. But too little is currently done to address uh, conflict and military activities impact in human health and uh, environment. Um, in Yemen, uh, in 22, the war uh, had displaced around 3.7 million people. And the majority of them live in temporary settlements. And more than the third um, live in the weak shelters. Based of the climate change, Yemen suffered from heavy flooding in, in the last in the past three years into 1920 and 21. For example, in one governorate that is Marib in 20 in 2020 alone, 35,000 uh, 35, people lost their homes, shelters during the floods, largely to the number of informal settlements and waterways. Many ATPs were being displaced for second or third or fourth times due to climbs and floods events. In Syria, even the, the situation there is even worse. During the war, many climbs refugees were forced uh, to move from different places to the, uh, to the urban areas that's far, far away from the front lines conflicts. So in the, both countries, um, the stop our that collapsed many of many hygiene systems and wastewater uh, treatment plants have caused the spread of diseases such as malaria and so on. So the acceptable wars are among the underlying causes of diseases and provoke famine risks in the um, medium and uh, long terms. There's severe pollution cases have uh, provided some of the ugly amics of the recent armed conflicts, oil fires and spires, bomb damage and looted in industrial facilities and damage waste, all are linked with the contemporary conflicts and all uh, can endanger the ecosystems and human health. By these obvious and often serious sources of pollution, rarely tell the whole story, the relationship between armed conflicts and uh, pollution or what we, we see as the worst can be complex and its legacy can take over for years after the end of these, these uh, conflicts. Thank you. Thank, for, thank you for describing that landscape and the, just the extent of the challenges that are being faced in those countries um, because of the climate, because of war and the coupling of the two. So the next question I would like to give you both the chance to answer and it's, 
kind of the foundational question that we'll circle around and then come back to uh, again in this discussion. But just the question being, can, can there be war and conflict um, at the same time as uh, fighting climate change and somehow protecting the environment? Is it possible to have the two go on or is there, is it just absolutely impossible to uncouple conflict from um, impacting the climate in some way? Um, perhaps Deputy Minister, we can start with you. Yeah, climate and war for me is something, you know, the worst combination. And I've been working on climate policy advocacy for many years, uh, also has been an NGO representative. And I very well remember, you know, that the, the gap between the actions needed and finance needed for climate change mitigation and adaptation is huge. And it was always one of the arguments that NGOs were actually saying that we shouldn't increase or we should decrease the military spendings and better direct them to the peaceful solutions to reduce emissions, to uh, support energy efficiency in buildings, public transport, and other very good activities, which not only reduce uh, greenhouse gas emissions, but also improve our quality of life. And over the last two years, as a deputy minister in the ministry, I've been responsible for developing updated NDC for Ukraine, and we did a very good job. We took a much more ambitious target in uh, 2021, and uh, the whole government uh, kind of had a very clear vision and plan what we will do in different sectors to reduce emissions. Um, and now all that, you know, it's just, it's just in a very big risk. Because first of all, we would need enormous resources to rebuild the country. Secondly, so much is destroyed. I mean, destroyed for nothing. People's homes, industries, companies, like hospitals, children, like everything. And all this was developed with a lot of concrete, a lot of metal, a lot of different materials, which also means that a lot of emissions were emitted to develop it. And now to rebuild the whole thing, we would need again to you know, contribute all these emissions. Looking at the amount of the uh, metal scrap is also enormous. It's just, the, it, it's, it counts in millions of tons. And uh, it's also was developed with a lot of emissions. Um, of course, it can be to certain extent recycled but still, this is huge uh, greenhouse gas emissions, which you know would now have, yeah, they, 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 they were spent and now it will spend again because the whole situation, it actually pushes countries for more military expenditures and more weapons because the world is not in peace and every country, at least in our region, doesn't feel the, the, the security. So, yeah, this is a, a horrible situation. And then, um, I mean, it's something that the whole, all this war, it's something that we cannot justify. There is like the, uh, like all this time I was trying to understand what is governing the, the decisions in Russia because we cannot understand it. You know, we, we are a peaceful country. We didn't prepare for anything. We were mainly busy with kind of resolving our internal issues because a democracy in a non-developed uh, economy is always a struggle with corruption, with policies, with everything. And, you know, we were so much busy with that that nobody could even imagine and nobody could even believe that the neighboring country could come with a war justifying with reasons which nobody could understand in Ukraine. Like there are no Nazis here. We are not addressing anybody. Like the whole country is against this war. So no, the climate re emission reductions and the war cannot go together, not really. But um, what I also wanted to mention is that this war became a huge trigger to look at the need of phasing out fossil fuels for many countries. And uh, of course, it's now very critical to get rid of Russian fossil fuels, to put embargo, and we call all the countries in the world to put embargo on Russian fossil fuels, coal, gas, and oil, because it funds this dictatorship regime 
and in France, all these military activities that they're committing. And it's also good for climate. So as the quicker we get rid of Russian and also others dependence on fossil fuels, the quicker we will resolve energy security issues, but also fight climate change. It's also a challenge for us because even since 2013, when there were already very big tensions with Russia because of the war in the East, we were still consuming in certain way Russian uh, fossil fuel resources and uh, nuclear um, uh, for nuclear power plants, also nuclear fuel. So this is also a very big challenge for us, how to plan our economy, how to plan our transformation of the energy sector. And the cheapest way is to go for energy efficiency and renewables. And I really hope that, you know, it was also not very easy decisions for all these years for us, but I really hope that this war would also become like, no, you know, the end the point when the decision has to be taken very seriously and we shouldn't move in any other way, but we should really implement it. Those are such powerful words and um, the fact that you're able to see the a bit of a silver lining and perhaps trans transforming towards renewables in the future um, is, yeah. It's quite impressive. And uh, thank you for just sharing those images and sharing those thoughts during this time from what it's like there and what you're seeing and experiencing. Um, Dr. Alaya, would you like to comment on that question as well? Yes, thank you so much. Actually, I cannot add more as Her Excellency just uh, explained the meter is much better than me. She is specialized in the climate change and environment, but in my uh, in my perspective about the, this question, how to fight uh, climate change and uh, at the same time during the war, it's really difficult. Uh, you know, the, the conflicted factions, they are always uh, looking for their benefits, not the benefits of the public. Uh, but uh, related to the climate change um, um, uh, crisis, in recent years, climate change affected rain patrons and it is, uh, acting on environment, uh, environment, environmental circulation in the Indian Ocean, likely in Yemen. And this actually have uh, pushed the increase in frequency of steamy storms. Uh, and this case is not just only in Yemen uh, taking place, but also in many places in the world, even in the United States. But many Trumpies don't believe in the climate change issues. Um, in the uh, past six years, six storms have evicted Yemen compared to four in the last 25 years uh, since uh, records began. Uh, and the climate change is not a priority of fighting parties, but one of the effective ways is to have fighting parties agree to protect environment elements and follow the adjustment of the climate change measures in the world. This is actually my short statement about related to this question. Thank you. Um, yes, we are absolutely seeing more extreme weather events and that segues perfectly toward a different question that I had for you that I'll go to now, which is that most of the countries that are most vulnerable to climate change um, are in uh, parts of the world that are already experiencing war and conflict. Uh, so how are you seeing, and you gave some examples already, but how are you seeing climate change exacerbate pre-existing conflicts? And can the cycle be unbroken? Yes, actually, uh, environmental damage is not just an effect, but also a driver of the conflicts in both countries like Yemen and Syria, in my perspective or in my knowledge. Poor environmental conditions in Yemen and Syria before the war have been recognized as a primary factor contributing to the armed conflict, uh, namely the, like the mismanagement of natural resources, oil and gas, and the waste, the uh, little attention of government or response to the pollution and the scarcity that occurred in both countries, which damaged the agricultural sector. You know, in Syria, that including like 25% of the GDP and in, in Yemen, like, 20.3 uh, and 2017. So uh, like this, uh, this damage in agriculture increased the um, 
job, uh, joblessness, uh, food insecurity, and caused mass migration towards the urban centers. And this linked with the high pollution uh, and also uh, the high rate of population growth. Uh, and this is actually uh, imposed a greater risk of, of uh, uh, political instability. So I think such as in, 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 uh, environmental damage is, is really one of the causal mechanisms of the war in both countries, at least in Yemen and Syria. But for the second part of the question, uh, how, we can, how can this cycle be broken? Um, I think simply um, during the war, we cannot uh, break such as cycle, but we have to deal with the crisis uh, from trying to stop the wars. We, we're trying to see how the international community trying to force these, these factions, the conflicted factions to stop the war. And when we stop the war, we should have true governments to run the states. Otherwise, we will, we will still stay in the same cycles forever. Yes, definitely. Definitely political changes. And as you mentioned, international help, which we'll get back to at the end of this conversation. Um, Deputy Minister, I'd like to go back to you now. And something that you touched upon in one of your first answers was assessing environmental damage as it's happening during the war. Uh, could you tell us a bit more about that and how your ministry is um, handling that as the crisis unfolds? There you know, go. that's one of the tasks, which is um, everybody is keen on that. So we have a huge cooperation with our non-governmental organizations, with our academia, with international experts who come to us and offer the kind of contribution to this uh, process. So we try to collect different facts with different uh, devices. So we have chatbots, so people can also uh, submit information if they are at the areas which are difficult to reach uh, by uh, officials of environmental inspection. There are, of course, regular checks by environmental inspection when it's happening on the territories which do not have the very active military um, is it like uh, actions, but of course there are a lot of impacts which we cannot even have access to. So, for example, in the Black and Azov Sea, there were quite a lot of accidents and ships being um, attacked, and of course that also has its environmental pollution. But it's very difficult to to get to those places to take samples and and so on. There is. Um, there is one difficulty, and uh, that's also what uh, my colleague was referring to, that in the international uh, law and international treaties, it's not very developed, like uh, what happens with environmental damages in the case of conflicts and uh, how to you know, refund all those impacts from the aggressor country when the conflict is over. So like one of the challenges for us is to like on one side to understand what are the opportunities within the existing international law, but there is definitely a need to develop and review and uh, come up with a new provisions in the international treaties, which would address this issue on a much better level. Uh, because we are trying to invent certain methodologies uh, related to the war impacts. And, uh, you know, it's, yeah, it definitely has to be developed because what, what is there is not enough to address all the issues. Well, um, ideally, as the climate crisis heightens on international agendas, that would be a push to get this included in more treaties. Uh, but thank you for making that point, um, because I think that's something that often we don't think about too much at this moment. Um, another question for you, Deputy Minister, uh, is that a lot of conflict-stricken countries depend on the Ukraine for their food supply. Um, the region is known as one of the breadbaskets of the world. It provides so many staple crops to so many countries, especially in the global south. So how do you foresee the war in Ukraine and its effects on food exports impacting conflicts in other countries that depend on you for their food? 
yeah, that's one of the very bad consequences also for the like global uh, humanity, because as we understand, uh, in certain grains, it's up to 10, 20, or in certain products, it's even up to 50% that Ukraine was supplying the products to the global markets. And uh, since the war started, you know, in the end of February, basically in uh, one third of our territory, the agricultural activities could not be implemented as they should. Um, in, in certain cases, the fields are with mines, so it's dangerous, they cannot go there. They were supposed to do certain activities at certain point of time, so it's not happening in most of the territories. Also, with the problems of, uh, you know, access to fertilizers, access to um, uh, fuel, access to and the machines, they were also destroyed in many territories. So we definitely would have a huge decrease in the um, agricultural production this year, and that would definitely have impacts globally. And as far as we understand from uh, UN reports that it's already happening and the prices for food products are growing. So that's, um, yeah, that's one of the very bad negative impact of this war, which also uh, would have on the other countries. Thank you for sharing that. Um, it's going to be uh, interesting to watch this unfold over time and see how it is dealt with. Uh, Dr. Alaya, something um, that the Deputy Minister mentioned earlier is the role of oil and gas and fossil fuels in um, the ongoing conflict in Ukraine. But I'd like to hear your thoughts as well on um, how decreased dependencies on fossil fuels can not, not only help the climate, but also help to limit war and conflict. Yes, uh, thank you. Um, actually, in my perspective, that uh, conflict and political uh, instability do not help uh, overcome different environmental crises and in many cases lead to the people to be more aggressive um, as it created tension between, between them and between different parties and different conflict countries. For example, if you can take uh, one example from the poor and conflicted countries, for example, the IDPs and the host communities over, they have a lot of, a lot of, uh, uh, conflicts over the sharing of the limited resources. Um, but in the different places internationally, most of the wars in the world took place because of the responsibility of getting natural resources as gas and, and oil. Uh, I, this is to uh, ensure the economic stability. And you, you can see the different examples, the war in Iraq, the war in uh, in Ukraine and different countries is because of the oil and gas and even in Yemen um, and Syria also. So uh, I, I think, uh, for example, when we find that some of the European countries right now are afraid to have really a clear position in the war of, in Ukraine, is due to the fear of not getting enough gas and oil which are enough to paralyze, for example, the, uh, the German economy, for, for example, in this case. So for, the, for this reason, the trend of countries towards clean and green energy will help first the self-resilience of countries in producing energy and thus ending the so-called dependence on strategic areas and the race of industrial countries to control these areas. This meter was caused and will cause different conflicts, uh, many conflicts in, in the future. The tendency to uh, transfer clean energy and achieve self-sufficiency will surely lead to address the climate uh, pollution and thus stopping climate change around the world. At the same time, it will lead to the stopping of many conflicts over oil and gas, as well as reducing the opportunities to feeding conflicts and war from these easy and sometimes dirty money to obtain as, as the money of oil and gas. Thank you. Um, yeah, the transition to um, a green economy and uh, clean energies is just so crucial in so many ways. And thank you for highlighting that in some of the regions that you focused on. 
Another question uh, for you is about uh, cost and money. And war is extremely expensive. The average cost of war in the 10 most conflict afflicted countries in 2019 was 41% of their GDP. So it was costing them enormous amounts of funding. Uh, meanwhile, one of the things needed most to tackle climate change is money, is funding, particularly in developing countries. Uh, so what type of financial aid is needed most to help countries mitigate and adapt to climate change while they're still experiencing conflict? Is that possible? Is there a way to provide fund to help them combat climate change while they're undergoing conflict? Yes, this is really a very interesting question because, you know, uh, sometimes in the during war, most of the international programs, they are really focusing on emergencies, not to the development side. So I think conflict and lack of food increase the people needs. For example, uh, you know, in Socratra, uh, for example, in Yemen is really a very uh, uh, famous, I think, interesting uh, island in the Indian Ocean, Yemeni one, Socratra. Uh, the local communities are relying on practices that are harmful to the environment for their life hold. So uh, out of the lack of their knowledge or segments of the population are randomly cutting trees, which leads to the further de decline of the environment and the loss of really rare types of wood. So uh, one measure of, of, uh, of war impacts on climate change is stop, stop the stop of the development projects I just mentioned before, um, of which were development to fight the climate change. So related local strategies are all on hold now and almost the international community is following their own strategies, which are really mainly, uh, uh, mainly emergency focused. So the climate change worsened in the current wars, for example, the floods happened during the last period, uh, forced many families to leave their, to leave their, their homes. This me, me this, this makes the people more aggressive and the situation is far difficult. So to break such a cycle between war and climate change, we should have more awareness about the climate change problem. We should have some training programs in management of natural resources during war and addressing the different climate uh, uh, change issue. And also we have to prepare a lot of programs in the uh, middle and long term for different natural and climate change risks. And these actually are very required uh, during war. Because, you know, simply we forget these issues and we focus about the relief programs and uh, some programs that really in the one time and is gone. So um, the climate change um, changes are very important and uh, uh, interrelated issue that must have always be considered in, in, in any war-related international and national or local peace agenda. Um, international community has to shift from emergency to development agenda in countries during war, even if such as programs aren't visible. But there are some ways to make them visible as to focus more on the local communities initiatives. Because you know, simply doing real war, the all government are broken and we have very limited capacities for the non-governmental organizations, but we have really very wonderful uh, local community initiatives. Like, you know, in Yemen, I just have a database for almost 5,500 local community initiatives and the initiative one can cost like two, uh, uh, two million dollar was really uh, a lot for for a poor uh, uh, society or a poor state that's suffering from uh, a war for a long time. Thank you. That's a really interesting angle, um, bringing the money to the local communities during times of conflict and developing um, their projects and their programs there. Um, Deputy Minister, what would you like to comment on that? What types of financial aid or projects or programs does Ukraine need now uh, in your sector in the environmental space, but also in the future? That's actually one of the most difficult questions, which we also uh, put to ourselves, like uh, 
how the um, development program for Ukraine should be after this conflict. And of course, there are a lot of challenges. Uh, there, there are challenges that uh, the budget is very scarce. So like it's very difficult to cover even basic costs and uh, basic spendings, but the needs are enormous. And, um, you know, when when certain developments have to happen on big scale and quickly, it's very difficult to make it, you know, in a quality way and well thought and well organized. Um, so I think, yeah, we are now currently thankful to all the international support that we get on humanitarian side. And um, that's really extremely important because the needs are enormous and that's, uh, you know, very, very important. So we think the whole global society will help Ukraine now and Ukrainian citizens on that. Yeah, but for the future, it's... Um, it's a huge amount of challenges and tasks, um, but I would say that uh, it's important to have everything well planned. So it's important to, in a coordinated way, to be very creative in terms of how to do things so that, you know, like uh, to really spend uh, resources wisely. Um, there is um, There is an issue like on the, means of implementation so for me as a government representative it's also very important that you know we we as much as possible learn to be as efficient as possible in spending our internal resources and having like clear procedures and really improve the processes uh, but uh, in terms of aid i think now after the war it will be everything so we have to be creative in supporting small business, medium business, how to develop the big industrial companies, which have lost all, also almost everything in some cases. We have to think how to develop um, energy efficiency in buildings and public transport and like all the other areas. So needs are enormous. How to organize it in the most efficient way so that it's also like implemented as quickly as it could, but in a wise way, but also not very long, because for example, you know, we all work through the same, through the same programs. I think that uh, like my colleague in, in, in countries like Yemen, so it's international financial institutions where the projects are implemented on a very long scale. It takes a lot of time and it's not so many projects. We have, uh, of course, like UNDP and other programs, which is uh, like certain technical assistance. But when we talk about such huge conflicts and how such huge tasks, we have also to innovate like ways how to really coordinate it and implement in a good way. So it's not a very easy task. I think it's, it's extremely challenging. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and I can imagine it's hard to plan and it's when you can't see into the future and you don't know what's coming. Um, but yeah, it is an incredibly challenging task indeed. Uh, the next question that I will pose to both of you again is uh, studies have shown that armed conflicts directly due to climate change um, because of environmental changes that cause challenges that put people at war with one another are set to increase. They've already risen uh, from, um, they've influenced about 20% of armed conflicts in the past century, uh, and they're expected to increase potentially fivefold if global emissions aren't reduced and global warming uh, keeps heightening. So my question on this topic uh, about climate caused um, conflict and violence, uh, should this be treated in the same way as a normal conflict? Or is there anything that we can do uh, to really, to try and prevent or thwart some of these climate-induced conflict risks? Uh, we definitely have to do everything possible to prevent any conflict. And uh, because it's cost in terms of human lives, in terms of you know, we have so many children 
which lost her their parents, like six-year-old kids, which don't have parents anymore. And um, yeah, so every conflict should be stopped, like with all the possible means we which are there in the world. And um, yeah, we have to do everything to make people happy and to prevent all the damages. Um, so whatever we as humans can create and develop should be used to prevent any conflict. Thank you. Yes, uh, in my side, I think um, uh, to address this question, there are a lot of ideas, as I mentioned before, that an financial aid that helps to, to move from emergency um, action to a development project is very uh, is very important uh, approach for international community um, and such as projects uh, have to work via the local uh, and public authorities and uh, as i told especially the local community uh, initiatives which is really a good approach uh, to handle such as issues during the war this is i think it will be the second uh, the second areas of me and i think uh, more uh, stability and more jobs through uh, local pace water projects such as uh, such as a cash for work projects is it is also needed and i have i have published an article about this case how to shift from food aid to a cash aid but it's uh, i think uh, we have also the the road map how to do that even during the conflicts we you know simply the foreign aid during war is is really subjected to the looting from the conflicted factions and it became uh, as a source of the war and the survivor of the war and it's, it's what they call it the war economics so uh, i think uh, the cash for work projects is a very important approach and i think the international community has to to study it such as approach more and to see how to implement it in the right way we have i have subjected a, a lot of recommendations a policy recommendations in my research and there are a lot of uh, also researchers from different case studies they studied the same approach and it is really a, a very interesting approach that to be to be presented in the international uh, agenda the international community agenda so this kind of project, I think, will create earning opportunities to weak, jobless, or semi-skilled locals, reduce the tension and impact of the war, uh, but also enhance the um, life holds resilience and promote climate change adaption. Um, as also I just mentioned before, uh, through agreement between the concerning parties and the conflicted parties, it should be also uh, there. And when you achieve any peace agreement, uh, the climate change agenda should be there. Um, implementation also, uh, I think the last uh, point I would like to, to mention is also about the UN. Uh, so implementation of the UN regulations related to reducing climate change and uh, strict decision to prevent uh, um, uh, evicting on facilities that may also increase uh, uh, pollution in a different country is very important. And uh, I think now most of the uh, peace talks are are actually um, um, uh, they didn't they didn't also uh, uh, consider the climate change and the environment issues so far, which is really very important element for the stability and also uh, re reconstruction after the war end. It is very important that climate change and also the environment side. And in my recommendation that. When we have peace talk, we have to both the climate change and also the environment in the under the agenda. Thank you so much. Um, and exactly these ongoing international negotiations and if and how this link between climate and conflict is increasingly included um, is just becoming ever more imperative. And um, for our last question, perhaps we go there, and this is something that our listeners certainly want to know, is there are um, climate discussions coming up in November this year at the annual COP, um, but um, there's also an upcoming uh, COP on desertification and drought upcoming in the next couple of weeks. And just throughout the year, there are ongoing international uh, negotiations um, going on around how we tackle climate change in different landscapes. 
so what are some of your major hopes or wishes or asks for parties who are convening in these uh, conferences to come to agreements on how we uh, tackle climate change against the backdrop of conflict and especially the conflict in Ukraine that's gathering so much attention? What do you hope to see them discuss differently this year? What do you hope that they take into account differently this year uh, to help prevent some of these disasters in the future? I really expect that for many countries, you know, the situation in Ukraine uh, would would be a push for a quicker kind of phasing out from fossil fuels, and uh, maybe that might also lead to stronger mitigation targets and plans, or at least, like if not on international level, but within internal policies, the more every country does on emission reductions and phasing out of fossil fuels, the better for the global climate is. And then, of course, we expect, uh, you know, more discussions on how to operationalize Article 6 uh, mechanisms, if they would be useful for countries, because currently there is no kind of international mechanism uh, working on um, creating this additional value for projects which try to save greenhouse gas emissions and aim like for a very good results. Um, and um, yeah, so I remember how many critics was also of CDM and GI, but hopefully we would be able to develop better mechanism, which would enable certain projects and uh, scale up certain technologies distribution all over the world. Thank you. Um, and for listeners who are um, hearing this, Article 6 is about carbon markets and regulating um, emissions trading, which is just so important and, yes, could help um, transform economies toward greener economies and um, massively increase funding, which is needed. Uh, Dr. Elia, over to you. Yes, um, actually, uh, for, uh, for me, I, I, I just her uh, excellency just mentioned too many points. I think when such as international uh, initiatives uh, trying to deal with the climate change issues in different countries is not just only for the climate change issue, different different issues in the world, like women issue, children, or whatever. They're trying to use one size fit for all, for all countries. Um, and they, they, they must have measures that actually link to the local environment, the local situation for every country. So when they start to implement their, their orientations or programs or policies or plans, whatever you can name it, they face a lot of difficulties in, in, in the, in the uh, local levels, in the local cities. So my recommendations that they have to focus in every case uh, and visually and trying to formulate policies and plans and orientations related to the development or related to the emergency help or whatever that can fit with the local situation and the local knowledge. Thank you so much. Um, I really appreciate the link back to local communities and local knowledge that you've made a few times in this discussion. Um, so that um, concludes our questions and we're coming up on time here. Um, but before we finish, I know this is a topic that is so close to home and so close to the heart. Uh, so I would like to open up the floor if there's anything else either of you would like to say on this, um, anything that you feel wasn't addressed in this conversation that you would like to speak upon, uh, the floor is yours to do so now. Thank you, I would start. So yeah, I just would like to thank for this discussion because I think we really have to explore and on the international treaties and on the global processes to actually address the environmental impacts from the war conflicts, which are in the world and might unfortunately happen in the future. Um, yeah, and as a citizen of Ukraine, I would like to thank all the countries and all the citizens for support to our country. And uh, we really call everybody with every possible action to help us in stopping aggression of Russia in Ukraine. Thank you. Yes, uh, from my side, thank you so much for the initiative. Really, I enjoyed today to have this great discussion about a very important topic. And also, uh, it's really missing related to the our area in the Middle East and MENA region, and especially in Yemen. It's, 
this is really one one of the biggest problems for the country and uh, we are facing a lot of problems related to the uh, climate change and the storms and and I think the climate change and the environment and related effects on the agriculture or like that is was main of the the main uh, uh, major factors that contributing to have such as conflict to to happen and my recommendation for all international community and also the related countries in the region who are really trying to organize the Yemeni peace talks to put the climate change uh, as part as a segment of the peace talks and and I, I would like to thank all the countries and uh, uh, who are trying to to achieve the peace in the country and I would like to ask also uh, the other the other um, uh, powers in the region and also the international level to stop intervening in the Yemeni local affairs and keep the society running itself and to achieve the peace by itself. Because you know we are suffering a lot. It's enough the enough of the war. The people are dying of starvation and and hunger and the twenty first century and. And there is no any attention from the international media about this missing country and missing world. Thank you. Thank you so much for those um, calls for peace and bringing attention to conflict in Yemen, uh, which is indeed often overlooked um, and not at, uh, gaining the attention it deserves. Uh, and once again, I just thank you both so much for joining, especially you, Deputy Minister. <laughs> you mentioned at the beginning of the conversation that there are um, air sirens going on in the background sometimes during your day. And it's just, um, I'm so grateful that you took the time to join and to share your thoughts and to share what's happening. And it was indeed an important conversation. And we will share this widely with our audience to try to get these messages out to the world as best we can. So thank you once again, and thank you to everyone who joined us um, in this GLF Live, and we'll see you next time. Next up on the GLF Live podcast, we're heading up north and taking a sneak peek inside the world's most important seed warehouse. That episode drops in two weeks' time, so please stay tuned. In the meantime, leave us a rating or write us a review on Spotify or Apple Podcasts, and give us a shout on social media with the hashtag GLFLive. And for everything you need to know about landscapes, ecosystems, and climate change, visit our website at globallandscapesforum.org. We'll see you on the next one.